as we continue and actually this morning complete the series on thankful in all circumstances. I appreciate Kelly's uh, opening this series and and laying a foundation for it two weeks ago and the the great message that Nick brought last week as well on uh, uh, giving thanks in our lack. You know, Kelly talked about giving thanks in the ordinary, everyday, mundane things of life. She talked about how choosing to give thanks in the everyday things actually opens our eyes and helps us to begin to see things that we've not seen before. When we begin to develop eyes of thanksgiving, we begin to see all of the little ways that God blesses us every single day, where God is at work every single day in ways that are completely unexpected. Uh, Nick talked last week about giving thanks in our lack, drawing on the story of Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 as he took the two fish and the five loaves. Nick reminded us that God has a long track record of taking our meager resources and miraculously turning them into more than enough for his glory and for our good. This morning, I want to talk to you about uh, giving thanks in hardship. Giving thanks in hardship. So it, it's one thing to discipline ourselves to be thankful every day. To look for the everyday things that remind us of God's, where God is at work. Uh, it's a little more challenging to give God thanks in the midst of our lack. When, when our eyes can't see enough to choose to give thanks to God anyway until he brings forth the miracle of plenty. Uh, That's a challenging thing. But today we're going to take this to a whole other dimension. Today we're going to talk about giving thanks in the midst of hardship or suffering. Giving thanks in the midst of hardship and suffering. Now, in just a moment, I'm going to ask you uh, to think about and to identify a specific place of hardship in your own life. It could be something that uh, you're experiencing right now. It could be something from the past. But I want to ask you to think about something specific in your life that would be considered a hardship. I think, however, before we go there, it's probably a good thing to define hardship. When we speak of hardship, we're not talking about having to walk 75 yards instead of 25 yards because somebody else got the best parking place. We're not talking about the the very, very difficult challenge of choosing which cereal among the 35 different brands we're going to take home to eat today. Uh, We're not talking about having the internet go out for a couple of hours and we can't get our email. Let's call those kinds of things inconveniences, okay? Those are inconveniences. Nick talked last week about first world problems and third world. Those are, those are first world problems. And quite frankly, first world problems don't qualify for hardship. Uh, so I want us to be careful that as we think about this, that, that, that we're not thinking about inconveniences. We're talking about hardship. I mean, quite frankly, just coming back from the Middle East, it's really, really hard for me to even talk about hardship. Uh, Because, you know, in my own life and in our lives compared to to people who live in most of the rest of the world, we don't face a great deal of hardship. But but you see, that's where there really are two challenges here, right? The one challenge is to minimize hardship and to to think of hardship uh, as just inconveniences. But the other danger 
is to idealize hardship so that it has no practical relevance to my own life. In other words, to do what I just did, to say, you know, compared to our brothers and sisters in Syria and Iraq and in Jordan, I have no hardship whatsoever. To do that could lead you to a place where the only option is simply to live in denial and to pretend that everything is is wonderful. I had a friend tell me years ago, your hardship or your pain is your pain. Whatever it is that causes you pain is your pain. Uh, We can't always compare it to others because we have to deal with what has come to us. And so I do want to say this morning, uh, I I don't want us to turn inconveniences into hardship, but neither do I want you to leave here today with the idea that I have no hardship because I'm not going through what someone else is going through. Your pain is your pain. It it might be injustice. It it might be betrayal. It, It might be broken relationships. It might be economic challenges. It might be a job situation. Uh, It might be loneliness. It it might be insecurities. Anything that causes you significant loss or pain should be considered hardship. And so I want to ask you, here at the very beginning of the message, to take the card that you saw on your seat when you came in. Uh, These cards have been out for the last three weeks, so you've become familiar with them. I want you to take the card this morning... And before we go very far in our message at all, I want you to take a pen and very, very briefly, just a few words, write down your hardship. Write down the thing that you would say is either a great hardship in my life right now or something from my past that I've not fully resolved. Some hardship from my past that still has power over me in the present. Uh, again, don't, please don't write out a paragraph. Just write down a few words. This is for you. Write down a few words that concisely define your hardship. I want you to write that down before we go. And I'm going to give you just a moment to do that, to write those words down before we go on. Now, when you're done, just place it down beside you. We're going to come back to it later on. But for now... Uh, Just put it aside, and I want to share with you uh, several scriptures that speak to giving thanks in the midst of hardship. There is the scripture that has really been uh, the the key scripture for the entire series, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you. In Christ Jesus. And then Ephesians 5, 19 through 20. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for what? Everything. For everything. Everything includes whatever it is that you just wrote down on your sheet of paper, right? Let's go to the next one. Uh, James 1-2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. 
Uh, in the message, uh, Eugene Peterson renders it, Consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. And then there's Philippians 4, 4 through 6. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Now, we could go on and on. I will tell you that you could find a similar scripture in every book in the New Testament. Uh, At times, it seems like it's on almost every page of the New Testament. The New Testament is filled with scriptures that say similar kinds of things. But what are we to conclude from them? I mean, what does it mean to give thanks for the hardships of our lives Uh, What is God getting at? And what is God trying to help us to understand here? Um, When when I was in high school, I I played football. um, And, uh, you know, football coaches are generally not the most sympathetic guys in the world, right? Um, But uh, we had one particular coach who was probably the most callous of them all. And and there were times, it might be in practice or it might be a game, when you'd get dinged up or you'd just get exhausted and and you'd ask for a break. And his response to us was to look at us with disgust and say, rub some dirt on it and get back in the game. I mean, that's what he'd say, right? Anybody ever told you to rub some dirt on it when you were whining or complaining? Now, let me just ask you to quit. Is that what God's saying here? Is God saying to us, when we go through hard times, quit your whining, rub some dirt on it, and get back in the game? Is that what this is all about? I think you know that's probably not the answer. But what is he saying? I mean, what is God actually saying to us when he says, when you find yourself in the midst of the hardest thing you've ever been through, give thanks? This is some cosmic invitation to denial? What is God saying? What is he getting at? Uh, I just want to say that every time we find ourselves in a hard place, there will always be two narratives before us. This is something I've been thinking about a lot in recent weeks. And it's kind of the proverbial you know, devil on one shoulder and angel on the other. Every time you go through something that's really, really difficult, I can guarantee you there will be the voice of the enemy whispering in your ear a narrative of what this hardship means. And inevitably, what the enemy is going to be saying to you is that this hardship says something bad about God or you. That's the narrative that he wants us to embrace. That's the narrative that he wants us to live in is this belief that hardship means that either God or I am no good. Either God is not good or I care, he cares so little for me, I must be no good. That's what the enemy always wants to bring to you in the midst of hardship. But there is always another narrative. And the other narrative is what God is up to. And I want to tell you this morning that, that though you may not have ever considered it before, That God never allows you to go through anything painful or difficult for which he does not have a purpose. We do believe in the sovereignty of God. 
We do believe that everything ultimately passes through the hands of God. So if God allows hardship into our lives, we believe that there is always a purpose for it. And there is always a narrative of what God is up to. Now, let me be clear here. Sometimes we do not see it in the moment. That's why giving thanks in the hard times is a, is a, it's an act of faith. It's an act of faith that says, I choose to accept God's narrative. Whatever that may be, I choose that narrative instead of the one that the enemy has for me. I think about um, Joseph in the Old Testament. You know the story, right? So Joseph was his father's favorite. His brothers were, you know, they, just like any brothers, right? You're just a brat. You're, you're the one that dad loves the most. Well, they, they began to resent him and envy his relationship with their dad. And so at some point, they decided to, to do him in. And uh, they, they at first were going to kill him. And one of the brothers talked him into letting him live, but just to sell him into slavery So they sold their brother into slavery, who ends up in Egypt, and then ends up getting accused of a crime that he didn't commit. So not only has he been uh, sold into slavery by his brothers, but now he's thrown in prison for something that, he's actually thrown in prison for doing the right thing. He was tempted uh, to, to, to have an affair with his boss's wife, refused to do it because of his integrity. Then she blamed him, and he ends up in prison. So if there was ever anyone who had a right to curse God or to curse himself, I think you'd agree, Joseph certainly fits the bill, right? Joseph fits the bill. And yet... God began to work in Joseph in these places of hardship. And God eventually raised him up to become the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. And it was through Joseph that the people of Israel were saved in the time of famine. Years, years later, decades later, when Joseph is an old man and his father has now died, his brothers come to him and they're terrified that our brother, now that dad is out of the picture, is going to bring vengeance on us for what we did all those years ago. If you look it up in Genesis 50, Joseph says these words to his brothers. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God meant it for good. Now, I have referred to that scripture many times as a, a classic example of forgiveness Forgiveness is not letting someone off the hook. Joseph looked him dead in the eye and said, what you did was evil. What you did was wrong. But I'm releasing you to God because God had a whole other purpose in it. And the reason that Joseph did that in chapter 15 is decades earlier when he was sitting in a prison being punished for something that he never did, Joseph chose to embrace God's narrative. He chose to believe that God was up to something that would bring beauty from the ashes. He chose God's narrative over the enemy's narrative. And I want to say to you this morning that in the midst of hardship, when we choose God's narrative and reject the narrative of the enemy, that we are choosing to walk in God. And that's what Thanksgiving... Thanksgiving is, is perhaps the first step in choosing God's narrative over the enemies. When we choose to give thanks, 
We are embracing God's narrative in the hardship in which we find ourselves. And in doing so, we are choosing, first of all, the way of humility. We're choosing the way of humility. Uh, The Greek word for thanks, Kelly mentioned this in her message two weeks ago, uh, is eucharisteo. Eucharisteo. That's a Greek word that is translated to give thanks. And at the heart of that Greek word is another Greek word, a root word, that is charis. And the word charis means grace. That's why some of us say, uh, when we want to bless our food, some people say give thanks, some people say say grace. Because the word grace is at the very heart of the word thanksgiving. When we choose to give thanks, we are choosing to, to receive God's grace in the situation. To give thanks is to recognize that we are recipients of God's grace. Um, several years ago, Pam uh, did a Bible study or, or word study on the word deserve. The word deserve. She was wrestling with this word deserve in her own life, and she decided to do some Bible study. And she looked up every passage in the Bible where the word deserve showed up. Do you know what she discovered? That every place the word deserve shows up, it's either saying you didn't get what you deserved, and that's a really good thing, or you did get what you deserved, and that's not a good thing. What she did not find anywhere is any use of the word deserve that had to do with us getting something good on our own merit. See, the word grace means undeserved favor. Undeserved favor. And the truth of the situation is this. If we're living and breathing, we haven't gotten what we deserve. What we deserve is to be cut off from God. What we deserve as sinners is death. And so every breath we take, every sunrise we see, is a pure act of God's grace. Uh, In her book, 1,000 Gifts, Anne Voskamp quotes G.K. Chesterton, this poem, this little brief poem, and this is what it says. Here lies another day during which I have had eyes, ears, and hands, And the great world round me, and with tomorrow begins another, why am I allowed to? Voskamp comments immediately afterwards, why doesn't anyone ever ask that question? Why are we allowed to? When I realize that it is not God who is in my debt, but I who am in his great debt, then doesn't all become gift? You see, when we choose to give thanks, when we choose to embrace the way of grace, what we are saying to our enemy is, the only thing I deserve is death and rejection from a holy God. But God has chosen instead to give me life and salvation and an eternal destiny. Everything good in my life is a pure gift of grace. Uh, again, years ago, Pam, I don't know where she picked this up, but uh, we, were, we were working with our kids, you know, and they were in those stages where kids began to get spoiled. And they, you know how your kids begin to think, uh, I deserve this and that and the next thing, Right. 
you know, if you, if you don't believe in original sin, you've never been a parent, right? I mean, our kids, and, and we did exactly the same when we were their age. We, we show it all the time. You know, kids think they deserve everything. And somewhere Pam picked up this line and she said to them, we want to give you everything, but you deserve nothing. You deserve nothing, but we want to give you everything. This is the heart of a loving parent that says to a child, it's important that you understand that arrogance and pride is not the way that leads to life. It's not the way that leads to life. But here's the thing. We serve a God who loves to give us good gifts. James 4, 6 says it straight out. But he gives us more grace. That's why scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. When we recognize that we deserve nothing, but we have a God who has given us everything, what can we do but humble ourselves before this God and say thank you? Thank you for all of life. Thank you for everything. That's where the paradigm shift begins. The paradigm shift in terms of the power of thanksgiving begins when we choose to understand that we deserve nothing, but God longs to give us everything. When we choose to give thanks in the midst of hardship, we're also choosing to trust God implicitly. We're choosing to say, I may not understand what I'm going through. I may not be able to explain it. I may not have the answers to all of my why questions. But I choose to trust God, period. Again, the enemy is going to come to us and declare to us God is not good. And God does not mean good to you. That's the narrative he wants you to take. But beloved, the word of God over and over and over again says, I long to do good to you. I think about Jeremiah 29, 11, where God says to the people of Israel, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. How many of you know that verse? How many of you have clung to that verse uh, in times in your life? Can I remind you of the context of that verse? The context of that verse is that these words were spoken through a prophet to the people of Israel who were in slavery in Babylon. They were living as slaves in Babylon. Not only that, but we don't, I mean, this is the problem with taking things out of context, right? You just pull a verse right out. Go back and read what comes before it. And what you're going to see that comes before it is Jeremiah says to them, uh, go ahead and buy houses, build a house, settle in, get comfortable. Because you're going to be here for a long, long time. And the truth is they were there for 70 years. And it was in that point that God says these words. They were in the midst of hardship. They were in the midst of slavery. And they would be there for 70 years. And yet God declares to them, I know the plans I have for you. Plans not to harm you, but to bring you good. God is saying to them, I know what you see right now. And, and the truth of the matter is, is what they see is they were getting what they deserved, right? Uh, they had been completely rebellious against God. God says, I'm going to leave you here for 70 years. I'm not going to rescue you. I'm not going to pull you out. I'm going to let you stay. But you need to know that my plans for you are good. They're not to harm you 
but to bring you good. C.S. Lewis said, if you think of this world as a place intended simply for our happiness, you find it quite intolerable. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts things, don't you? Think of it as a place of training and correction, and it's not so bad. It all depends on how you think about it, right? If, if, if happiness is the height of life, and happiness defines the, 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 the greatest thing that we can have or achieve, then the truth is we can very quickly get disillusioned in this place. But if we understand that God is constantly using every hardship to shape us, to make us, then this world becomes a training ground where the hardships of this life are used by God to make us who he desires us to be. So what is God up to when he allows hardship? When he allows us to to go through something hard or when he allows us to stay in it much longer than we ever thought or anticipated? What is God up to? Well, uh, Peter says that God is perhaps refining your faith like gold that is purified in the fire. 1 Peter 1, 5 through 7 says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. God says, I'm using this hardship to strengthen your faith. I am using this hardship to burn off impurities that will rob you of my best. I am letting you go through the fire in order to burn off things that are not intended to be there. James talks about the fact that God uses hardship to build our character. Uh, James 1, I said, I quoted earlier verse 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because, this is the rest of the verse, we don't just do this out of denial. It's not just putting a happy face on a bad situation. James says to us, you can rejoice because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. When God allows us to go through hardship. He is up to something. He is shaping us and shaping our character and making us mature. Or I think about Hebrews 12, 26 through 29. And I'm going to read it to you from the message because it's so powerful. Uh, His voice that time shook the earth to its foundation. This time, he's told us quite plainly, he'll also rock the heavens. One last shaking from top to bottom, stem to stern, The phrase one last shaking means a thorough house cleaning, getting rid of all the historical and religious junk so that the unshakable essentials stand clear and uncluttered. Do you see what we've got? An unshakable kingdom. And do you see how thankful we must be? Not only thankful, but brimming with worship, deeply reverent before God. For God is not an indifferent bystander. He is actively cleaning house, touching, torching all that needs to burn. And he won't quit until it's all cleaned. God himself is fire. If you've ever been through anything that rocked your world, anything that left you feeling like everything around you was shaking, 
I want you to understand that God will allow things that can be shaken to be shaken. But he's not doing it to inflict you pain. He's not doing it because he's angry with you. He's doing it because he wants to give you an unshakable foundation. God says, sometimes I'm going to let you go through things that will shake you to your core so that you will come to stand only on that which cannot be shaken, which is Christ himself. God always has a purpose in our difficulties. When I think about my own life, and I I suspect that all of you would probably say something similar, I can look back on the hardest times of our lives. I remember... 25 years ago, well, 22, actually not that, 22 years ago, uh, Pam and I had just agreed to go back to school, uh, go back and work on a doctorate, and we were preparing to leave our home, to leave our church family, to leave our friends, and we had a three-week-old baby, our first, by the way. So we were getting uh, uh, initiated into parenthood while everything in our life was being changed. And we go back to school for a year, and then on top of it, Pam finds herself within weeks in a severe postpartum depression. Not something she chose. Her, her hormones went haywire, and depression came in, and it lasted for months. Without question, the hard, one of the hardest times of our lives. But can I tell you, when I look back on that time, That in that hardship, we were brought to our knees in prayer in a way that brought us into the presence of God and brought us together as husband and wife in a way that we had never experienced before. And in the hardest place of our lives, we found God to be most faithful. We found God to be most present. And we found what it meant to be one as husband and wife as we endured that hardship together. Since that time, we've walked through a number of hardships, uh, dealing even this year with hardships with our kids as they're battling spiritual warfare, going through spiritual warfare. You know, let's just be honest. Sometimes the hardest thing of all is not what you have to endure, but what someone you love has to endure. When you're the one who's not suffering, but the person you love the most is suffering, and, and everything in you wants to fix it and you feel helpless. I'm not sure there's any suffering that's worse than that is to, to want desperately to fix the situation and not be able to change it, not to be able to fix it. We've been through times like that with our kids. So have you, with, with people that you love. But in the midst of those times, if we choose to embrace God's narrative and not the enemy's narrative... If we choose to ask the question, not why is this happening to me, but God, what are you up to in this? God always has a way of showing up and revealing himself in ways that we never would have seen otherwise. I love this quote from Ann Voskamp in uh, 1000 Gifts. She says, I wonder too if the rent in the canvas of our life backdrop the losses that puncture our world, our own emptiness, might actually become places to see, to see through to God. That which tears open our souls, these holes that splatter our sight, may actually become the thin open places 
to see through the mess of this place to the heart-aching beauty beyond. To him, the God whom we endlessly crave. I think about so many of our favorite scriptures. Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. In uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though we're being severely persecuted. Though we outwardly are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen, God's narrative, is eternal. And what you begin to discover, and what we've been trying to help you to discover through this entire series, is that thanksgiving becomes a means of grace. We use that term in reference to uh, things like Holy Communion or baptism. We call those means of grace. They are physical means, physical things that allow us to experience the presence of God in a unique and special way. And I want to suggest to you today that giving thanks is a means of grace. When I choose to give thanks in all things, even the hardest places of life, Giving thanks is not going to answer all your questions, but here's what it will do. It will put you in the presence of the one who is the answer. He is the answer. And thanksgiving has a way of bringing you into his presence so that God can do what he desires to do in your life. That's why it's a means of grace. It's a means of grace. Many of you were here a few weeks ago when Dale Woods, our area director in the Middle East, um, was here and he gave the report on what's happening in, uh, in Iraq and Jordan and other places. Well, we were with him again in Jordan for this conference. And he said again, actually he didn't say it, someone else said it, uh, the same thing that he said on this stage. I don't know how many of you were shocked by this statement. Honestly, I kind of was. He said these words. He said, there are people in Iraq right now, Yazidis, who are saying, we thank God for ISIS. We thank God for ISIS. I'll be honest with you, there was a part of me that wanted to revolt against that very idea. How can you give thanks for ISIS? How can you take something that is so heinous, so horrible, and give thanks for it? But as I listened to them talk, here's what became very, very clear. They had come to a place of understanding that knowing God is better than life. And not knowing God through Jesus Christ is worse than death. It's worse than death. And they had discovered that it was the very thing that caused them the greatest pain that became the window through which God revealed himself. And for the first time in history, these people now know who Jesus Christ is. For the first time in history, these people now understand that God is with them, that God is for them. But it was in the midst of their hardship that they understood 
and were able to give thanks because God had used the most painful thing in their lives to reveal himself to him. And this morning, we're going to close with Holy Communion. We call it Holy Communion. Do you, reckon, do you know that some denominations or churches call it the Eucharist? That name sound familiar? Eucharisteo means to give thanks. The Eucharist, we call it this because on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the cup and he what? He gave thanks. And then he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. Now I want to ask you to think about what we've just been saying. On the night that he was betrayed, in his final meal on this earth, Jesus gave thanks. He took the cup, which was a symbol of the blood that he would be shedding within hours, not for his own sin, but for yours and mine, and Jesus gave thanks thanks. He said, thank you, God, for the opportunity to give my life so that they can live. When he took the bread and gave thanks, he did so with the full understanding that this bread symbolizes his body, which would be broken on the cross. And yet Jesus chose to give thanks. And that's why we call this the Eucharist. As we come and we take these elements, we are saying, God, thank you so much for your grace, for dying for me when I was a sinner, for giving your life for me when I deserved nothing. Thank you, Eucharisteo. Thank you for your amazing grace. This morning when you come, I want to ask you to remember what these elements mean. God says, remember every time you do this. Remember the grace that is yours because of him. And ask him today, Lord, help me. Give me that paradigm shift. Give me that shift in my soul that allows me to see not what the enemy desperately wants me to see, but to see what you are up to in the middle of my hardship. I'm going to ask those who are serving to come and to prepare the elements. But while they do it, I want you to take that sheet of paper again. Take your piece of paper. At the top of it, you've just written down something that is hard in your life. Either something that happened in the past that you've not resolved or something that you're going through right now. And now underneath that hardship, I want you to take some portion of the rest of that little sheet of paper. And I want to invite you to write out a prayer of thanksgiving. Write out a prayer of thanksgiving for the very hardship that you identified earlier on your paper. While they're preparing the elements, go ahead and do that right now. Just begin to write out your own prayer of thanksgiving. Give thanks in all things.